The Gospel of Mark. Huh? Say thanks, B. Nice. We're going to be continuing in our sermon series today, and we're going to be stepping forward into the next section of this book, which is Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. And now we step into the real fun of this book. Uh, We're stepping into a time we just saw Jesus as he was crossing over uh, Lake Galilee. As he's crossing over the Galilee, uh, he... Nope, Galilee. Sea of Galilee, not the Lake of Galilee. It's called a sea. As he was crossing over... He showed his immense authority over creation itself, and now we get to see his authority over more of creation, or specifically, uh, demons. So Mark 5, 1 through 20 says this, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you done to me? What have have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, been, who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has showed mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I love this story. I love like every story I read. You might know that every time I say I read a new part of the Bible, I'm like, oh, I love this part. It's like every part is one of my favorites, but this is just wonderful. We see Jesus now exercising authority, not just over the physical creation, but also the spiritual realm, those rulers or powers that are in place over the world, demons in this case. We see Jesus cross the sea, and he steps into this new region around these cities called the Decapolis. It's a region that's basically marked by 10 big cities, all of which are pretty Gentile-based, not really within the Jewish culture heavily, as you can tell by the fact they've got pigs hanging out, right? There's a whole bunch of them on the side of the hill. And as they get off on this side of the, on this side of the sea, as he steps out, he steps into this area that's got a whole bunch of tombs in it. And living among the tombs is a man. Now, this man is not a man that you would normally uh, see. He is often ripping and tearing off his clothes. He is running around and screaming. He is breaking chains and showing actual beyond human strength. 
because most people can't just bust chains off of them or break shackles into pieces. He can't be subdued by people. They were trying to subdue him, and he couldn't be. And he chose to live among tombs, cutting himself and wailing. This man's in trouble. Now, in his particular case, the reason he's doing these things is because he is possessed by unclean spirits, by demons. And they are making him act in ways that sort of undo the God-resembling uh, attributes of creation. People are made in the image of God, but the things that are image-bearing, this demon is causing him to actually deface, cutting himself, hurting himself, letting him have the ability to use his faculties, being out of his mind, and not showing his humanness. He's basically shifting into something no longer human, which is sad. And Jesus sees this and takes pity on him. Now, Jesus, we've already seen heal a demon before, or he remove a demon-possessed man before. <laughs> remove the demon and heal a demon-possessed man before. Got those two backwards. We've seen this before in this gospel. One of them was done at a synagogue, right? There was a Jewish person who had had a demon in them, and Jesus expelled that demon. So already in this gospel, we've seen Jesus remove a demon that was within a person in the holy grounds of Israel, within a holy place, a synagogue. And now we see Jesus encounter a demon in an unholy place, in an unclean place, a graveyard, not amongst the Jewish people, but amongst the Gentiles. Not on Israeli land, but on Gentile land. And Jesus still exercised his authority there. Some fun things to pick up on here. Let me just read little parts of this for you, right? He stepped out of the boat, and they went to the tombs and met a man with an unclean spirit. It says that this man, night and day, was shackled, was, was shackled and chained, and he continuously broke them apart, and no one could subdue him. He saw Jesus coming towards him. It says from afar. So Jesus gets off the boat. This man's out there on the hillside with some tombs, sees Jesus. And this man immediately sprints to Jesus and kneels down before him. So consider that picture, right? If you have seen this man, and these people around, there's heard their shepherds with the pigs. There's other people around who see this. They see Jesus step off the boat, and this guy who has been out of his mind and running and yelling and cutting himself immediately sprints to Jesus, kneels down, and starts speaking in a way that makes sense. Now, whenever he speaks, it's not him speaking. It's a demon. The demon cries out with a loud voice, says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? What have you to do with me, Jesus, is one of my favorite phrases in this book, because whenever you read that in context, the basic thing this demon is saying is, what's up? Why are you here? Why are you messing with me? He's basically saying, mind your business to Jesus. This is my area. That's yours. What have you to do with me is used in the Old Testament a bunch for people saying, what of it? The guy came and knelt before him, but also sort of said, Jesus, why are you even here? Get out. Then he says this, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And that may sound like, all right, and I don't even know what those words mean. But what this demon is actually doing is basically saying Jesus to Jesus, don't hurt me or be cursed by God. 
So just consider that, that concept there. A demon running to Jesus, being forced to kneel before him still because he has to, and saying, don't mess with me, and if you torture me, God's going to curse you, to Jesus. We can say demons have some gumption. I guess that's a good word for it. Like, now, he said this because Jesus had been saying to the man already, to the demon already, come out of him. So it's worth noting, Jesus saw this demon and said, you, get out. And the demon said, don't mess with me, and knelt there. So Jesus allowed this demon enough leash to hang himself or themselves. He had the authority to just force him right out, but he didn't. He said, get out. The demon started to fight back. Says he's going to curse him if he does anything to him. And then Jesus asked him a question. He says to the demon, what is your name? Interesting concept. Within uh, Jewish writings of the time, this is a normal thing people would ask during exorcisms because there was this concept in Jewish culture that to have the name of something is to have authority over it, right? If you can name something, you can exercise authority over it. And so Jesus says to this demon, all right, what's your name? And the demon doesn't actually answer with a name. He says, I am legion, for we are many, with legion literally meaning I am lots. I am many. So I want you to just get a little glimpse of what this area was probably like. Because we know that he cast these demons out into a herd of pigs, and at least 2,000 pigs sprint and run away. So there's a whole bunch of demons in this guy, right? Now, we know demons are finite. They're not infinite. They're not everywhere, omnipotent, omnipresent, nothing, right? What's it say about the region this person is in that 2,000 of them can have time to hang out in one dude or more? It is not probably the best area spiritually. He says, we are legion, we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. This is an interesting concept as well, because they're not saying, don't send us off of the planet, don't kick us out of here. They're literally saying, don't send us away from the country we're in right now. Anyone have any idea why they would say something like that? Throughout the Old Testament and throughout parts of the New, there's this concept that spiritual authorities, or demons at times, rulers, principalities, things of that nature, are literally given over by God areas of the world that they can have reign and they can run and they can exercise their time in. Within the Old Testament especially, there's a part where Yahweh literally says to his council, I'm placing you over all these other areas, but I reserve Israel for myself. So likely these are demons who were like stationed in this area. This was their territory. It's where they belonged. It's where they lived. And they didn't want to be forced out of it because where they had power and authority. Now, fun story, God gave the world over for a time, but he always had a plan to redeem it to himself. He always had a plan. He knew what he was going to do here as well. They begged him not to send them away from where they belonged. A great herd of pigs was feeding there by the hillside, right? And they begged him and said, send us there instead. We'd rather be in these animals than for you to destroy us or cast us out. So Jesus gave them permission to leave and go into the pigs. 
And then the pigs freaked out and ran and killed themselves in the water. Which, basically, it sounds strange, but literally every early source would basically say that's saying the demons also destroyed themselves, removed themselves from the world. They ran <laughs> in fright and were destroyed anyway. Now, I want you to consider this man. Because we often think about the demons or think about the pigs in the story or consider what they're like, but we also need to remember the actual real folks of the story is Jesus and this person. So whenever this happens with the pigs, and there's people all just saying, like, what just happened? Why are all my animals gone? I'm going to be very hungry tomorrow, right? This man who they had seen hurting himself and harming himself and being incoherent and running and babbling and so strongly he could just rip chains off and he didn't like wore clothes he was in tatters the entire time sitting at Jesus' feet perfectly calm and clothed again where did he get the clothes i don't know he was now wearing clothes just consider the difference from where he was to where he is in that quick period of time because of who jesus is and what he did it's huge Jesus transformed this person from what he was into who he is, who he was supposed to be, by exercising his authority over the spiritual world. And everyone was amazed. The people in this area were amazed by what had just happened. But amazed isn't quite the best word for it because they weren't just amazed. They were also frightened as all get out. They were scared because if Jesus did this, he's big, right? There's something about him. The Demon called him the son of the most high God, which was in pantheons of uh, the areas surrounding Israel. This was like the God above all other gods, is what people who were pagan would think. And so the demon recognized who he was talking to, the son of God. And then he fled, the demons fled. And the people saw this happen, and they realized there's something about God, something about Jesus that's different, and they freak out. And then what does the man say he wants to do? All of the people ask Jesus to leave. Please go. You're scaring us. Get away. Which is an interesting thing to see, right? Hey, look, this person has been fully transformed. I'm scared. Go. Get out. But not an unusual actual attitude. Just think about people you know who have gone through con, uh, like conversions or transformations that were far smaller than this one, right? People who became followers of Jesus and their life changed just a little bit. And people around like, ugh. Go away. We don't want to see this. It's not an abnormal reaction for people to be scared or semi-repulsed by what Jesus is doing because we really don't like to see change sometimes. They asked Jesus to go, so he gets on his boat to leave. And as he's leaving, this man who had been demon-possessed comes up to Jesus and says, let me be with you. Have you heard those words before in this gospel? They actually have. In chapter 3, whenever Jesus is calling out his disciples and bringing them to himself, he's going up on a mountain, he's calling out the 12. He says that their purpose is that they might be with him and then proclaim him, right? This demon-possessed man is asking Jesus, 
if he can come be one of his close disciples. And Jesus tells him, no. Does that blow your mind at all, just a little bit? That Jesus told a person, no, you can't be one of my 12. It blows my mind for a couple of reasons. One of them being, there's this book that I love and that I sort of base parts of my life and concepts of evangelism on that's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Uh, and this basic concept is that Jesus gathered around him people, and that's the way that he chose to build his church, and that's the way that we're supposed to, right? Uh, I should gather my three people who are like my John, my James, and my, and my, my Peter, and I should grab the other 12, they're my outer circle, and these are the people I should pour all of my time into because these are the people who will be the ones who hear and learn what Jesus is doing through me, and they can go and tell people afterwards, right? And then they get their three and their 12 and blah, blah, blah. It just runs in a cycle, right? It's basically a Christian pyramid scheme, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, about 14 generations, whole world is done. That's all you got to do, guys, right? This isn't what Jesus told him to do. Discipleship doesn't always look like that. Instead of Jesus saying, yes, come and follow me everywhere I will go, what did Jesus tell this person to do? Huh? Actually, it's huge in Mark, but not in this case. In this case, Jesus doesn't tell him to be quiet. He tells him to go back home, live his life, be with his family, and tell people, about the mercy God had on him. Usually Mark has Jesus telling people, don't tell them who I am right now, especially in Jewish areas. Don't tell them what I'm doing. I've, yeah, I've healed you, don't tell people. Yeah, I cast out the spirit, don't tell people. Just shh, be quiet, all right? Yeah, we got lay low for a little bit. We've got some stuff to do. Largely that's because in Jewish areas, uh, Jesus is keeping people from fully recognizing he's the Messiah until he's ready to announce it. Because people have these big expectations for what the Messiah is going to be like. He's going to come and launch a military assault and kick out Rome and Israel will be its own country again. Everything will be great. That's what people thought the Messiah was going to be. And Jesus wasn't going to do that. And so he was trying to hold off on Jewish people knowing that he was the Messiah yet until he could tell enough people what it means for him to actually be the Messiah, so they could actually get it. Oh, I'm not going to defeat the world through military victory. I'm going to defeat sin, death, and brokenness through my death and resurrection. That's what Jesus was teaching. But he's not in a Jewish area. He's not in a place that has this background of messianism that he has to try and uh, teach and adjust. He's in an area wherein people are completely foreign to the concept of God as one. this person, Jesus tells to go and tell people what's happened because they need to hear about the power of Yahweh, the power of God. See, Jesus didn't just come for Jewish people. He came for Gentiles too. He didn't just proclaim himself to the Jewish people. He proclaimed himself to Gentiles, to Samaritans, to anyone you can think of. And in this case, he was offering a way for this man to go and tell something far greater than if Jesus would have just showed up and preached. Does that sound weird? Because Jesus was telling this man to go tell his story. Now, one thing we should probably pick up here is this. Jesus also told the man to go back to his life. 
We hear things like that, and we think, okay, I know Jesus. I should go be exactly like I was before sometimes, right? If you met anyone who's done that before, this is my life now. I've become a follower of Jesus. Awesome. This is what it means to be his follower. So now I can be his follower and still be the person I was, which is true to an extent, except for the fact that Jesus telling this guy to go be his, follow, to go be his follower at his own house, to go follow him at home, is different than this man was before, right? This man was ravaged by unclean spirits, by brokenness, by sin, by the destruction of the world. And then Jesus told him to go and be with your family. Go step back into the life you should have had if this hadn't happened. Jesus wants you to be you, but he wants you to be the you you should be in this world, not the you that you were in this world. He wants you to be who he created you to be. Not who you are because of the ravages of sin, death, brokenness. Stop and take a quick gander or think about yourself. Just a quick pause here. And think about who you are. How you identify yourself. Everything you place your own identity in. Stop and take a quick mental inventory and think, are these things that Jesus has created me to be, or are these things that I have claimed about myself as my identity that are actually wrapped up in the world, wrapped up in sin, wrapped up in brokenness, wrapped up in death? Is there anything? I, for a long time, held as part of my identity the fact that I can be a harsh, driving person. And like, oh, so yeah, sorry, I'm harsh sometimes. You just have to deal with me, right? That's who I am. Yeah, that might be part of my personality, but it's not who I am. My personality is not always godly, and I should recognize that and realize I'm not supposed to be that way. Speaking of personality, there's this one fun concept wherein people always say, this is my personality. I'm this person on this score. I'm this person in this test. Therefore, you have to relate to me this way. I have to relate to me this way. We claim our personality, and we say, this is what I do, without realizing this is what I do is what makes our personality, Right? It's a circular argument. I am this way, so I'm going to act this way. And because I act this way, that's what my personality is. It's a cycle. It's dumb. You can change that portion of your personality by choosing not to act like a jerk anymore. I can, at least. Do I do it perfectly? No. Sometimes I'm still a jerk. I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm fallen. But I've learned more and more not to be. Largely because of people like you having Christ-like influences in my life. People like Jake saying, hey, Chris, stop being a jerk. People like Micah saying, stop being a jerk. People like, uh, well, hi, hon. <laughs> Probably the biggest one right there, actually. This actually changes over time, too. I'm going to owe my kids some money. But quick concept. I'm a much better dad now with Audra and Ayla than I was when I first had Anna. And I'm hoping I will be a better dad in five years than I am right now. And that's because, literally, Anna taught me how to be a better dad. I actually at one point apologized to her 
said, Anna, I'm sorry you had such a crappy dad and that you have to watch your sisters have a better one. However, that's because of you. Thank you for teaching me that. <laughs> you can change, right? All that is to say, you cannot simply claim, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but hold on to concepts of yourself that claim that your personality is identified by sinfulness. Who here knows someone who claims as one of their main like identifying forces, I am a jerk? Anyone know someone who does that? Yeah? Yeah? If that person is saying, I am a Christian, but I am a jerk, deal with it. That person is saying, I am a Christian, but I'm choosing to live unrepentantly. That's not Christ-like. Jesus freed this man from demons, literal demons. Offered this man restored life and restored hope. And told people, told him to tell people what God had given him. Would you like a nutshell of what discipleship is nowadays? Probably the best definer of it for who you are. It's that. Christ has freed you from the brokenness of this world. It might have been demons. You might have been possessed. I don't know. I know all of you half the time. You might have been dealing with the brokenness of sin in this world from other people, the brokenness of sin in yourself, the effects of the fallen world around you. You may be dealing with death and hate and hurt and heartbreak and brokenness. And Christ saved you from it by his death and resurrection. And when he saved you, he offered you the ability to be a son or daughter of God. And his call on you is this, go forth and sin no more. Begin to live your life as if the brokenness of the world is not the thing that drives you. As if the brokenness of yourself is not the thing that drives you, but as if Christ is the one who is pushing you forward and forward. It's beautiful. And then, tell people your story about how God has had mercy on you. Your story is far more powerful of an evangelistic tool than any words I could speak. You guys ever tried to argue with someone who believes in conspiracy theories? How well does it work to just lay out facts for them? actually doesn't work at all. It kind of backfires. If you just sit there and argue with people, what tends to happen is they tend to dig into their position and fight back, even if it's irrational to do so. This is why apologetics, that concept wherein you can learn more and more about the Bible and more and more about Scripture and answer any question someone could have, and you can convince them to join the faith by passing as many facts to them as possible, it's kind of a broken system. It doesn't actually work. Because people are going to ignore facts. What's hard to ignore is your story. If I walk through someone and say, this is the seven reasons why I believe Jesus existed in Galilee in this time frame, and there are these things and these things and these things, they can all be like, bunk! But if I say, this is what I've seen Christ do in my life, 
This is how he has transformed me. These are the ways in which he's made me a better man and a better father. These are the ways in which he has saved me from myself, rescued me from the brokenness of my own life, and taught me more and more what it means to be a follower of his. That's much harder for someone to argue with. And honestly, much more important for them to hear. Bless you. Whenever I say we are called to go forth and proclaim the gospel, which I wholly believe every one of us for a follower of Jesus is called to do, I don't mean you should walk out there and recite the seven Bible verses that will immediately make someone become a Christian. What I mean is you go and tell them your story, and you tell them what Jesus did for you. So, what did Jesus do for you? Do you ever stop and remember and think about what he saved you from? Do you ever stop and think about the ways he showed mercy on you or blessed you when you don't deserve it or offered you redemption and hope whenever you had no reason for redemption or hope? Remember them. Remember him. And go tell people about him. So to recap, Jesus is more powerful than demons. You don't have to be scared of demons. He beats them. And fun story, he has given you authority over them as well if you're a follower of his. Later in this book, he'll be sending out the 12 and sending out 72. And what he gives them is authority to go forth and do the things he does, cast out demons, heal the sick, restore those who are broken. You have that authority too. Point two, discipleship doesn't always look the same for everybody. Just because someone walked in a different way than you doesn't mean it's the same, that they're doing wrong. But three, you are called to live as Christ called you to live and be willing to tell people his story. Let's take a minute. You can just hold on right there, Jake, if you're doing this. We can pray, and we can step into a time of communion where we're going to remember just who Christ is and what he's done. And we'll spend some more time worshiping him together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you have rescued us. Lord, from the brokenness of creation, you've rescued us from Satan and his minions. You've rescued us from death. We praise you for the fact that you have overcome sin in our life through your death and resurrection. We praise you for the fact that you have made it possible for us to have relationship with you whenever we could neither earn it nor deserve it. Lord, we praise you for the assurance we have in you and the hope we have in you that what you are doing will be done. Father, tell us what it means to be your followers. Teach us what it means in our individual lives to follow you. Allow us to be members of a community that pours ourselves out to you and proclaims you. Lord God, let us return to our lives as we step out of this room today, but we return to them as one who has been restored and redeemed by you. And Father, may we tell people the stories that you have given us. May we be willing to let people know just who you are and what you've done in our lives. Lord, empower us to do so. It's your name we pray. Amen.